can be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> I feel like we've uh, probably learned a couple of things this week. One is there's uh, no getting around it. February snow is not nearly as cool as December snow. <laughs> um, it, is, it is just not uh, virtual learning. Uh, on a, instead of a snow day, definitely dampens the mood, right? You know, so I, I think we've learned that. I think we've learned that 11 inches is uh, not as much fun as five, right? Uh, not easy to get rid of. And this is probably just my personal experience, but starting Tuesday, uh, the stomach flu also really kills the mood uh, of, of a, first, uh, a first kind of winter snow. So uh, it has been a long week. Uh, so we're, we're glad that you're here. We're glad you got dug out. Uh, and uh, uh, those of you joining us online, we're glad uh, to have you joining us as well. So let's pray and then we'll get into this, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you for his grace. And uh, as we are going to study for a while this morning, a family uh, that is uh, kind of starting to um, uh, fall into dysfunction, uh, I just pray that we would learn a little bit about your love and your grace and how we interact with the world. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I was uh, reading about uh, two farmers uh, that were suing each other, and they went before the judge, and the judge kind of looked at their case and said, listen, uh, the solution here is mediation. Uh, so I'm going to send you to mediation and see if we can't work this thing out outside of the court. And so uh, the two uh, farmers showed up and they, they went to the mediation and neither one of them would, would say a word to each other. And they sat there with the mediator for about 15, 20 minutes. And he said, all right, let's go back to the judge. Went to the judge and said, I don't think mediation is going to work. These guys won't even speak to each other. And the judge said, no, mediation's the solution. Go back. So they went back a second time, sat in the room together for 15, 20 minutes. Neither would say a word again. Uh, and uh, they went back to the judge and said, listen, um, I, I don't think mediation is going to work. These guys won't talk to each other. And uh, he's, the judge said, bring them in. So they, they brought the two uh, guys that were in the conflict together. They, they brought them in and the judge said, what on earth is the problem? Uh, we need you to talk to each other. We need you to talk with the mediator and, and get past this thing. And he said, listen, uh, the one guy said, I have no problem talking with him, but you made it very clear that we were supposed to negotiate in good faith but I'm telling you, it's impossible. I'm a Baptist and he's a Presbyterian, right? Um, and I think, uh, I, I think that, there, that that is a good description of where our, our world is. And it's also a dis good description of something that every single person in this room has in common with one another. There's not very many things uh, that we all have in common. Some of you love the snow. Uh, some of you have been cursing since Tuesday, right? And you're here, the only reason you're here in church is to ask for God's grace, honestly, uh, for what happened Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, but but so, so, so we don't have very much in common, but we do have this one thing in common, uh, more than one thing, but we have this thing in common. We've all navigated conflict. Every single person in this room has a story that they could tell about conflict. And, and the reason I know that is true is every single person in this room has had relationships and those relationships are made up of two sinful people. And they bring their sin nature into the relationship. I used to, in pre-marriage, I kind of stopped. I said, man, everything should uh, go really great with this marriage. There's only one problem. And they're like, what's that? The groom, you see the groom sitting right there? He's a sinner. They'd kind of nervously laugh. I say, you see the bride? This is why I stopped doing it. You see the bride sitting right there? That bride is a sinner, right? 
Um, and, and that's true of every single relationship that we have. We bring our sin nature into our relationships. And so every relationship has had some form of conflict and, and, and at some point. And sometimes it's their sin nature. And sometimes it's our sin nature. Honestly, most of the time, it's a little of both, to be honest with you. It's a lie that broke a trust that ultimately led to a conflict. It's a greed that caused one relationship to be uh, kind of one-sided, where one person takes and takes and takes, and the other person gives and gives and gives. It's the anger that's been straining a relationship for years and years. It's an unfaithfulness that was the straw that broke the camel's back. We've all had to negotiate conflict. Jacob, if you've been uh, here the last couple weeks, he's left his nuclear family after, spoiler alert, a ton of conflict in his nuclear family. We're going to start to see that the common thread here is Jacob, right? But he left his nuclear family after a ton of conflict, and now he's going to marry two women, uh, more specifically two sisters. Nothing can go wrong here, right? And we're going to see a bunch of conflict that enters into their relationship as their family starts to grow, as they start uh, their families, as he starts his family uh, with Rachel and Leah. And while this is a story about conflict, we want to kind of always keep a kind of high view of what's happening in these texts, in Genesis in particular. And the high view of what's happening is that God is forming a family that is going to form a nation. And it's taken a long time. Because remember, God called Abraham, and Abraham and Sarah had one son, right? Not a real big nation at this point, but one son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And now uh, Jacob is going to start to grow his family. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, and it's, it's okay if you're not, but if you are, you're going to recognize some of these names in this text because these are the names of Jacob's sons who are eventually going to form the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you kind of get a nod very early on here about how God is building up a family that's going to become the basis of a nation, and through that nation, God is going to bless the entire world. So we always, this is a story about conflict but it's also really a story about how God is at work in his mysterious ways. And there's a ton of conflict in this new family that Jacob is forming, uh, and you don't have to read very far into the story to see how the conflict comes to be. All right, here uh, is Genesis 29, starting in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, right, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben and said, listen, this is, just breaks your heart. It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Isn't that awful? Right? When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, and it's really tragic because none of what's happened to Leah at all in this story is Leah's fault. Her weak eyes from last week really aren't even her fault, right? right? None of this is her fault. And I suspect that Jacob may not feel great about the way he entered into this relationship. You remember last week, he was tricked, right? He showed up uh, to Laban's house and he said, I will work for seven years for Rachel. Uh, and instead, he ended up kind of being tricked and married uh, Leah. And he had to work for a se another seven years in order to marry the woman that he originally intended to marry. And you remember how the text thought, how the text reads? He thought he was marrying Rachel and in the morning, there was Leah. That's how the text reads, right? You, you really should read your Bible, right? It, it is a soap opera, right? He thought he was marrying Rachel. And in the morning, he wakes up all groggy-eyed. 
and bum, 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 there was Leah, right? And I think that often the root of conflict in a lot of relationships is one person, the other, one person or the other feels tricked. I talk to married people all the time in counseling that they feel their significant other put their best foot forward while they were dating. They said all the right things, they did all the right things, and after the wedding day and over time, they started to see the the real them. They thought they were marrying Rachel, but in the morning, there was Leah. They feel tricked when it comes to their job. They interviewed with this manager, and he said all the right things. He gave them a tour of the beautiful facility they would be working in. He made promises of large annual raises. He talked about a collaborative and supportive environment, and they accepted the job, and over time, much of it turned out not to be true. They thought they were marrying Rachel, but in the morning, there was Leah. They felt tricked when it came to the friendship that they are in. In the beginning, they were so kind and graceful. The friendship was going up and to the right. And over time, you begin to see these other qualities, these not great qualities. Like, what have I gotten myself into with this friendship? They thought they were marrying Rachel. And in the morning, there was Leah. You know what's tough? Is if I'm honest, I think sometimes people uh, across this country have felt tricked by the church, if we're honest. They feel they visit a church and the preaching says one thing and the worship service says one thing and the leadership says one thing and their experiences turned out to be totally different. And, and they end up saying, you said this was a place of grace or you said this was a place of generosity or you said this was a place of truth. They thought they were marrying Rachel. But in the morning, there was Leah. And here's the lie that Jacob buys into that I don't want any of us to buy into. The lie is that my hurt, anger, and frustration gives me the permission I need to hurt others. That's the lie Jacob buys into. He refuses to love Leah because he was tricked. And so my hurt, anger, and frustration gives me permission to hurt others, and it's not true. Listen, when you feel tricked, to be certain, it's frustrating. When Sam was little, uh, he was a really, really picky eater, all right? And he still is, but he, he was really, really picky when he was little. And so Cheryl and I decided we need to start this kid on a multivitamin. And so we found these gummy multivitamins and we started giving him the vitamins and it was going swimmingly until we had to rearrange some furniture at our house. And we started rearranging furniture and we started to find these pockets of gummies that Sam had hid all over our house incredibly frustrating. And when you feel hurt or lied to or tricked, listen, it may be a reason to respond with boundaries. In this particular case, we're like, dude, you are chewing that gummy in front of my eyes from now on. And so he'd sit there chewing it and I'm like, just watching him. Yeah. (laughs) Open your mouth like you're in a flipping prison, right? I'm going to make sure there's nothing in there, right? And boundaries are not a bad thing at all. I actually have a book in my office by the title of boundaries, but those boundaries that we need to establish sometime should never be based in unloving actions, right? So you never set a boundary that is aimed at hurting um, or treating someone in an unloving, unkind, or ungracious way, because the Bible makes this really clear. We are called to love, Now, there's a type of love that is an emotion of the heart, a type of love that might drive you, I'm not going to do this, but might drive you to write a song, 
or a poem or drop to one knees and propose, drop to one knee and propose. That being said, biblical love is really not a feeling. It's a decision of the will. If Jacob had chosen to love Leah, he could have done that. I think we receive a lot, a very good example of this from our Lord and Savior Jesus and the way that at the end of his life he interacted with Judas who would betray him and Peter who would deny him. Let me put this on the screen for you. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who would deny him, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me, classic Peter. Then, Lord, not just my hands, but my head as well. You're making it weird, Peter, all right? Uh, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Look at these words. He knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And then verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, all of them, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done to you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should go and wash one another's feet. I have set you an example, and you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If love were a feeling, like an emotion of the heart, there's no way Jesus takes this action. He's about to be deceived in the worst way possible, tricked in the worst way possible, a way that would result in his death. And I know he uh, lovingly submitted himself to it, so to say he was tricked isn't really accurate, but you get what I'm saying. He would be deceived and betrayed. But Jesus knew that. And he wanted to set an example for us that teaches us this. You don't get anything else from church today, get this. I can make the decision to love anyone. I can make the decision to love anyone. And I think some relationships are toxic enough and harmful enough that it requires a ton of thought and prayer and guidance and and the example of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to get what this might look like in our unique situation. At a minimum, you know what Jesus taught one time? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I think sometimes in a toxic situation, love looks like prayer. And I think as the story unfolds, it seems like when it came to Jesus, he didn't allow himself when it comes to Judas and Peter to be as angry as he is compassionate. Especially with Judas, he seems genuinely sad that Judas ends up making the decision that he makes. And obviously, love flows more freely from compassion than it does anger. And so that might be a place we can try to get to. To ask God to give us a heart of compassion God, would you give me a heart of compassion for the person that lied to me? Would you give me a heart of compassion for the person that tricked me or hurt me 
or deceive me? God, would you give me the eyes to see their brokenness and their pain that caused them to behave in such a way as this? It's a starting point. It might lead to prayer for them. It might lead to a place of prayer like Jesus teaches. And a place of prayer might lead to even more than that. So that might be a place we can get to. God, would you give me that heart of compassion? And what's interesting in our story today is that God sees that Leah is not loved and God feels compassion for her, right? God, it says, kind of opens her womb and allows her to have children. God uh, has a heart of compassion for her. He responds in that way. Jacob, for whatever reason, can't seem to get there. She continues to be treated as unloved. And to anyone that's ever felt like Leah, I would say this. Leah was unloved by Jacob. She was not unloved by God. God loved her deeply and blessed her deeply. And that's an amazing thing. All right, the story continues. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die, Genesis 30. Rachel is jealous of Leah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I would guess that Leah has probably spent a lot of her adult life jealous of Rachel because of how much Jacob loved her and how little Jacob loved her. I would guess that this jealousy was going both ways, and I think we would sometimes be surprised, all right? I'm preaching, I'm not meddling, all right? But I think we would sometimes be surprised how often the emotion and the attitude of jealousy is driving our actions toward other people. It's really hard to see. It is so hard to see because we want to believe the issues are all theirs, right? And I want to believe that when I'm in conflict with someone as well. But sometimes there is a jealousy hiding just below the surface that drives our actions. You might think they're just annoying, but below the surface, you might learn to be surprised to discover you're actually jealous of their marriage. You might think that they are so entitled. That is the most entitled person in the world. But just below the surface, you might be surprised to discover that you're jealous of their financials. You might think that, oh, they have been, things have been so easy for them. But just below the surface, you're kind of jealous of their relationship with their family. And I think jealousy is one of the great emotional liars, it just is. It tries to convince us that the grass is most certainly greener on the other side of the street. And the truth of the matter is, what we learn from Rachel and Leah is that everyone has their story, everybody has their sorrow, and everybody has their challenges. The grass on the other side may seem greener to you, but it is a lawn that requires mowing. We're going to discover this in about four months, all right? All right, the greener the grass, the more it needs to be mowed, right? And tended to and weeded. So Rachel and Leah, they have this mutual jealousy against one another and each of them have their sorrows and each of them have their pains and each of them has their trials. And next time you start to feel jealous of someone that seems like they live on the right side of town or they have the perfect marriage or the perfect family, just remember that you have their sorrows. I guarantee you they have theirs. And don't revel in that, but allow it to drive your heart of compassion toward them. So the story continues, all right? Jacob became angry with Rachel, all right? So you got this lack of love toward Leah, this jealousy between Rachel and Leah, and now Jacob gets angry with Rachel and says, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Jacob decides the best thing to do is to respond with anger, 
Every guy in the room's like, that always works, right? I'm gonna respond to a situation with anger. That'll make everything better, right? It's not the right response. I would guess he's frustrated as well. He's probably in pain too, wondering why pregnancy won't happen. He loves Rachel. Maybe in the earlier text, and I, there's a, when, when you're learning how to preach, there's always a thing about don't psychoanalyze dead people. I'm about to break that rule, all right? Because I wonder if in that earlier text, I wonder if it sounds to him like she is somehow blaming him for their problems. So instead, in the very next verse, he says, well, you want to blame me for, our, for us not having any children yet? And he ends up blaming God. And then it all comes out in anger directed back at her. Listen, anger's not the solution. It's hard for me to read because Cheryl and I went through a season of infertility before we adopted our children. And I will tell you, reading this story, I am grateful God protected us from this path. Reading this story, we see how blame-seeking doesn't make anything better, does it? Blame-seeking doesn't make anything better. And have you noticed in our world how fixated we are on finding someone to blame for all of our problems? For every ill that comes down the pike, someone has to be to blame. Even if it's just a sorrow that there's no explanation for, or it's a complicated matter, or there's lots of reasons why uh, it may have happened, we are fixated on finding someone to blame. And I think it's led to a political divide, it's the Republicans, no, it's the Democrats, it's the independents, you know. It's the relational divide. It, we're seeing it all over our culture that there is an anger and animosity toward one another. I've church, seen churches fall into this before where things aren't going well. I've, I've heard about it a lot. We've been really blessed, but I've heard about this a lot during COVID. When things aren't going well and um, maybe money's tight and attendance is down and all of a sudden, all of a sudden churches start looking for someone to blame and, you know, elders are blaming staff and staff are blaming elders and it goes south in a hurry. And listen, accountability is not a bad thing. Sometimes accountability needs to happen in all relationships and say, man, you were wrong here. What you did was a sin or what you did was wrong or you really hurt me or whatever the case may be. Accountability is a good thing, but I think we want to move away from blame seeking as our primary way of relating to one another. Uh, the need to have to find someone at fault. Because you know what it does in every relationship? And it does this in every area, political area, social area, spiritual area. What it does, you know what blame seeking does? It keeps us from moving toward godly solutions together. I've seen it in marriages. I've seen it in families. I've seen it in churches. I've seen it in tons and tons of relationships. When you fall into a blame seeking mentality, it keeps us from moving forward to finding godly solutions together. And we need that as a nation. We need it in our relationships. We need it in our churches. We need it in every we, we need it in our marriages. We need to come together and say, all right, the blame seeking is done. Let's find godly solutions together as a couple, as a church, as a nation. Let's move forward together. And it's, and, but you have to break free of blame seeking in order to do that. While you're still finger pointing, you're not putting your arm around somebody and saying, let's figure it out. Right? When you're finger pointing, you're not hugging, uh, you're, you're blaming, and it doesn't go anywhere good at all. The story continues, uh, uh, and we'll kind of close with this idea. But during the wheat harvest, 
Uh, Reuben went out. As, as a side note, before I read the rest of this, you can take it off the screen for a minute. Um, this is a really rich kind of deep story about all of the children that were born uh, to, to Jacob and uh, uh, Leah and eventually Rachel. We're, we're gonna see uh, the son that is born to Rachel here in just a little bit. Uh, but there's a lot of nuance to this story. We're actually gonna cover this in Sunday school uh, next week to really kind of talk about uh, the, the different sons that are born uh, in this text. And it's a really rich and good text. We just didn't have uh, time to, to do it all today. But all right, let's read now. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields uh, and found some mandrake plants, right? This was, uh, uh, during this century, this was an herb that was believed to address infertility, right? So you can see how this comes into play here. Reuben went into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. I don't think Leah needed the mandrake plant, but um, Rachel, she's had a bunch of kids by now, but Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes, Rachel's not been able to have children. This herb addresses infertility. Please give me some of your mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes as well? So painful. Very, and look what Rachel does. Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Right? So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. Look at the terminology. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said, God has rewarded me for, uh, has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again, and Leah's gotta, Rachel's gotta be like, you gotta be kidding me, what, what on earth? Right? <laughs> Leah conceived again, right? And bore Jacob a sixth son, and then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband, this time, my husband will treat me with honor because I have bore him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. And look at this, she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. We'll, we'll see that come true a little bit later, but this is unhealthy. Just, I, I mean, I, I know I'm, you know, I didn't need to go to Bible college to preach that to you, all right? right. You, you, can, you can read that. This is screwed up, right? I, I, this, this is a messed up scenario of, you know, please give me some of the mandrakes. You've stolen my husband. I'm not gonna do that. And, and on and on it goes. Rachel and Leah, they don't trust each other at all. There's a lack of trust, a lack of love, a lack of all of that stuff. And it's led... Um, it's led to this total breakdown of relationship where they don't trust each other. They don't even particularly seem to care for each other at all. It is a toxic situation. And I think it's a natural outcome when love has broken down and there's jealousy and there's anger and there's all the stuff we've seen in this text. People start to seek control, 
right? When, when this story begins to unfold, and you may have some version of a story like this where just everything just kind of fell apart, and that, that's what the story is. But love has broken down. There, there's jealousy and anger, and, and they are just both grabbing whatever they can to control the other one, and it all heads downhill very fast. And I think there's examples that we can see around us. There's political examples where people are just trying to gain control. There's relational examples where people are trying to gain control. There's spiritual examples where one person just tried to gain control. Someone got sideways with the other, and there is a lack of love now, a lack of respect, a lack of honor, and now what you have is, I got, I got to gain power over you, I've got to gain control over you, I've got to manipulate the situation. And I want you to know, Jesus teaches us a different way. And the gospel shows us a different way. It doesn't have to be like this. And I get that there's pain and there's sorrow and there's hurt because we're all sinners and we bring that into our relationship. I get that 100%. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. Jesus shows us a different way. The gospel shows us a different way. This story we celebrate every Sunday where God put on human flesh and he came to earth and he loved and he served, and he saved us from our sins so that we could be like him in the way that he lived, so that we could truly be like him, and it results in a better situation. When I love like Jesus loves, it doesn't require me to control you. I don't need to control you. I can just love you. When I serve the way that Jesus served, like at that table washing someone's feet, service doesn't require me to control you. I can just serve you. When I understand his grace that he showed mankind, grace doesn't require me to control you. Grace actually allows me to let control go and I can just love you for who you are. What the gospel does, what Jesus does, is it allows me to trust God who is in control and it allows me to take the posture of a servant, to take the posture of a grace giver, to take the posture of a lover, it allows me to take a different posture than what happens in this story where, all right, I've got to take control now. I've got to manipulate. I've got to abuse. I've got to be angry. I've got to get my way. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. The gospel eliminates all of that. And it says, would you just trust God who's in control? And would you love? Let him be in control, you love. Let him be in control, you serve. Let him be in control, you show grace. And that's how better relationships are built. Through the gospel, better relationships are built. Through Jesus, better relationships are built. And that's how a better world is built. When we stop acting like Jacob and Leah and Rachel and all of this nonsense, <laughs> to be frank, that's going on within this family, and we stop being like this and we start being like our Savior, our relationships are changed and our world is changed. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. It is a transforming grace. It is a changing grace. And I just pray right now that if we've been operating in this world like Jacob and Rachel and Leah, who, um, let alone loving each other, they don't even really seem to like each other. The things they say to each other, the way they treat one another, Help us to not be like this family. Help us to be like yours. That your son Jesus came to earth and put on a servant's towel and loved us 
and showed us grace and served us to save us from our sins to be sure, but also to set an example for us so that we can know this doesn't need to be our story. Your story can be our story. And so Lord, I know that there's a lot of pain in this room surrounding relationship and maybe feeling tricked or lied to or deceived. And I get all, all of that pain is in this room right now. Would you help us to see your example on the cross? Would you help us to listen to your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to read your teachings on this subject? Would you help us to choose a different and better way? Jacob's story doesn't need to be our story. Jesus' story can be our story. And it can change everything for the better. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together and we're going to remember that grace. Remember that love. Remember that service. Because while washing the disciples' feet was certainly an act of service, what was accomplished on the cross was even more. And so we're going to remember that just for a minute and we're going to ask, man, God, would you help this to impact my relationships? The one thing we all have in common is we've all been in conflict with somebody in some way at some time. The other thing we all have in common, Jesus came and loved us and died for us all. And so we all get to see his example and we all get to live it out and we all get to see the change that comes when we decide to not be like Jacob, but instead to be like Jesus. So we're gonna pass out communion and uh, you can just spend some time thanking Jesus for his example and then I'll come back up and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you, his grace poured out. May we receive it May we be changed by it, and may we live it out in our relationships. It's like I told you uh, in week one of this series, is um, the, the backdrop of these stories is a lot of conflict within this family. It just kind of follows Jacob around. We're going to see start, stuff start to break down with Laban now next week, and so it just kind of follows Jacob around, but it's really not a story of conflict. That's the backdrop. What I want you to see each week is that this is a story of God's grace and that Jacob and his family could understand it so much better. And I think we, we could understand it better as well, but if they would just introduce grace into their family and that Rachel could have a little bit of grace for Leah and what she's going through and Leah could have a little bit of grace for Rachel and what she's going through and Jacob could have a little bit of grace for both of them, he married two women and they're all living together, right? <laughs> a little bit of grace, Jacob, right? If, if, he, if everybody could show one another a little bit of grace in this family, it would make a really big difference. And it would make a big difference in our relationships as well. So that's my prayer for us, is that we would, the conflict is just the setting, but that we would see this as a story of grace. We stand, we're gonna close with one last song. God bless you guys. I'm glad you were here today uh, and got yourselves out. Um, and uh, we look forward to worshiping with you next Sunday. <laughs>